0: Morning. Oh, I need to fill these seats up. I mean, not that we have to, but I mean, isn't it great to worship together? <laughs> I think uh, we got a lot of people out of town, and there's also, uh, also, uh, I think we still have some people that are ill, so we need to be praying for them. But uh, But yeah, what a great morning! And you notice that we uh, continue to remember Christmas. I like to I like to let Christmas kind of because that Advent anticipates Christmas, and then we have Christmas, and then sometimes we just kind of like oop, then it's done, and we're on to the next thing. But but when we can look back and remember, Jesus came for us. I think that's so cool. So so uh, it's nice for a couple of weeks after Christmas to continue to uh, to remember to look. Uh, look to Christmas time, um, so love it if you would uh, turn to Luke chapter two now i want to I want to warn us, and i don 't think there are any young people here, but uh, those uh, that are a little bit closer to p g rather than g today just just in case you want to know it 's all biblical it 's all good, but uh, Maybe for sensitive younger, sensitive ears, we want to be a little cautious, but uh, we want to be honest with the scriptures too. So I just want to give you that warning just in case it might get a little edgy for you. You know me, edgy Jeff. So um, anyhow, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and we're going to go through verse 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, speaking of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. As it is written in, law, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the holy spirit was upon him and when it had been re- and it had been revealed to him by the holy spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the lord's christ and he came in the spirit to the temple <clears throat> and when his parents brought in the child of jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took him up in his arms and blessed god and said lord Posed, and a sword will pull, pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshipping and fasting, or worshipping with fasting and prayer day and night, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and spoke of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned uh, into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him our holy and gracious God, we thank you for this new year as a reminder to renew our minds and look to you. Grant to us that we might hear your voice as your word is read and taught. God, we ask that you would make us sincere and pious. Remove any desire from us to be seen by others that we may point to you in our devotion. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to save us to give us true value because our merit and virtue could never be enough. We thank you for his grace and mercy toward us while we were yet sinners. So God, now we humbly submit ourselves to you. We give over to you our hearts and our minds and our attention as we open your holy scriptures this morning. Teach us who you are through what you've given us to know you by. We give you this time in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen bacon is there any is there any more beautiful food than bacon really like i we all like steak most of us i i I order my steak rare Uh, denise likes hers medium rare we can all agree that anything over medium rare is burnt but bacon how do you decide it's delicious both crispy and chewy Right. The process of frying bacon is about the most satisfying daily task, isn't it? The, when I get, there's, there are a few things more gratifying than when I step out of the shower and I can catch that fragrance coming through the vents of the house, right? That, that, that faint whiff and you know what's coming. It's like, don't rapture me yet, Lord. <laughs> I have new covenant freedom to imbibe in first. Jim Gaffigan pointed out that f- that the frying of bacon sounds like applause. Oh, when he's right. It does, doesn't it? I applaud it. And I I know that there are I know that there are a few of you here that, that may hold to a kosher diet. Um, good for you. And I I totally honor and respect that, and I'm just glad that I don't have to, because because bacon, right? But why do we love bacon? The taste. Like is anything taste that good? That that magnificent fragrance. Oh man. Can you well, I don't here's what I don't want. Why haven't we come up with like an aftershave or cologne that smells like bacon? Right? <laughs> Seriously. Like if I had that, everybody would be sitting up here. You just want to sniff me. Right? We'd just be, mmm, Jeff smells good today. Maybe I should've maybe I should have like stood over bacon this morning before I came in. We could get everybody up front. No, we, it's, it's, we love bacon because of what bacon does for us, right? It, it's, we don't eat bacon for the sake of the bacon. It's not like, oh, that poor bacon just really needs to be eaten. I guess I'll make a sacrifice today. Like No, we eat it because it is satisfying to eat. And, it, and eating bacon, I know this has been said before, but eating bacon, you know, the one thing about it is it makes you hungry for more bacon right? It's so good. We eat it for us, right? Why do we buy a car? Do we buy it for the sake of the car? Oh, that poor Ford Motor Company, they need my money. No, we buy a car for us, right? We buy a car for our benefit, and we maintain the car for our benefit so that it will continue to work, and so it'll be worth selling when it's time for us to buy another car that we will buy for our benefit. When Denise and I buy a vehicle, we try to get, we try to get something that's not only functional but something also that we will enjoy, that we will, that we're gonna like. So Denise, she looks at how cute it is. And my primary concern is, does it have a Hemi? Right. Amen. Do we? Can I? Right. Some of you gearheads know what I'm talking about. Some of the Ram trucks come with that 5.7 Hemi, and for the price, that's an impressive motor, right? But here's the thing. You can get a Challenger with the 392 Hemi and the six-speed manual, trans- six-speed manual transmission with that shaker hood. You know, it's got kind of a hole in the hood and the air cleaner comes up and you can see the motor kind of do this. And that's a, that's a 6.4 liter V8 with 485 horsepower, 475 feet pound of torque right out of the box. Like, and I understand most of us couldn't make that a financial reality, but we'll do, we'll get as close as we can, right? We, because we want to get something close to what we like, right? We, we make decisions based on need and, and, and want, and hopefully we put the need first and then the want, Um, but then we're able to find something that we like within the framework of our need, right? We go to see a movie. We have boundaries. We don't, how many of you have ever watched a movie because Robert De Niro needs your money? No, we don't do it for the sake of the movie or the actors, right? And we have boundaries. There are things that we won't expose ourselves to, things that are inappropriate. But then within that framework, we, within those boundaries, we find something that we want to watch and we pay money for it, not because we're trying to help out those poor, starving actors and actresses, but to benefit us because that's what we want to do, right? another example how many of us moved to Idlewild for the sake of Idlewild I'm probably the only one in the room that could make that lie believable right no we live here because it makes us happy to live here I mean would I have gone to Bullhead City if I if God called me there I mean I Idlewild Bullhead City you know right we, so we might seek to serve Idlewild it might be something that we want to love on the people here but let's face it, we live here because it makes us happy to live here. We, we live here because of what Idlewild does for us. It, it's one of the most amazing places to live. We all agree on that. There, there are very few things in life that we do that are not for our own sake or for the sake of somebody that we love. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. It's not necessarily wrong. But here's, here's the point. There are very few things that we do for the sake of simply being faithful to something, regardless of whether or not it does us any good. Like, for example, rooting for the New York Jets. They've done nothing to satisfy me for quite some time, but I'm faithful. And even at that, though, it's still a little selfish. There's, there's hope for the future. Come on, there's hope for the future. Don't rain on my parade. There's hope right? Today, we're going to look at a word. Piety. Now, we often connect piety with self-righteousness because most of the piety that we observe in the real world tends to be false piety. But the definition of piety is the quality of being holy, religiously devout, or reverent. We might look at true and false piety in light of what we get, uh, why we get ready before we go somewhere. Most of us, if we're going somewhere important, we get ready. We don't, we don't go to prom in our best Walmart shopping pajamas, right? We, we, we get ready. We get guys. What do we do? We take a shower. We shave. Uh, we trim our ear hair. We trim our nose hair. If we have anything left on our head, we brush that. Uh, you know, we, we put on deodorant, oh, bacon deodorant, that would be great. you following me around like you <laughs> What, what do most girls do when they, when they get ready? These are stereotypes. We're, we'll get there. You know, most girls, what do they do? They wash their face, they bathe, they exfoliate, they wash their face again. They put on eyelashes, they put on foundation, they put on makeup, and then they put on more makeup, and then they put on jewelry, and then they put on the outfit that they spent two hours the night before deciding on. Then they look at themselves in the mirror and decide against the outfit that they spent two hours deciding on the night before. Sometimes. But why do we get ready before we go somewhere? Uh, they're, they're, really, there's two reasons, and usually it's a combination of the two, but the first is so that others will respect us or think highly of us, right? And we want people to see us and go, hmm, that's good, that's great, they look awesome today. Right? So, so we get ready and dressed so that we, and if I were to put bacon cologne on, it would be why? so people would be attracted to me, right? Co- we do that. The other reason is to honor and show respect to others. If I don't take a shower and I don't put on deodorant and I show up in my best Walmart shopping pajamas, I, people are not going to want to be near me, right? It's not going to show respect to the people that I'm going to meet, right? So we do that for, most of the time, it's a combination of the two reasons. Well, piety is similar. There are two kinds of piety. Uh, there's the piety that seeks to earn the respect and favor of others. That's false piety. And then there's the piety that seeks to revere and honor God, which, which really can't happen apart from the, the principle of he must increase, we must decrease. That would be true piety. Piety. And that phrase actually comes from John the Baptist, probably at the height of his ministry, when he, Jesus is coming and, and, and he tells his followers of Jesus, he, and this is John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So last week we closed with verse 21, but that's going to help us set up the scene for today. So let's read it again. Luke 2.21 says, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Joseph complies with Caesar's mandates, but the primary concern for Mary and Joseph, for Mary and Joseph is to obey the law of the Lord. Verse 22. When it, ta- when it came time for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male first opens, the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So, and we'll also see the, the obedience there in, in 39, but Jesus didn't sin, nor did he need to be dedicated to God, because he was, right? He, he's our perfect, pure and perfect Lord. He didn't need the old covenant, not only because he's the fulfillment of the old covenant and the initiation of the new covenant but because he's the author of both so why did mary and joseph drag jesus through these rites involving uh, the severing of uh, his foreskin and the death of animals it it seems senseless doesn't it Well, first thing before we can get anywhere with that we have to understand that salvation was never by circumcision or sacrifice those were signs of the covenant. Those pointed to the Covenant. And what a Covenant is, is an agreement between two or more parties. So the Old Covenant points to the cross, to the promise of Jesus, to the promise of God. It points to the cleansing work and justifying work of Christ. The ceremonial system points to the cleansing work of Christ, um, of His blood, and the sacrificial system points to the forgiveness of sins by substitution which took place at the cross. Under the new covenant, we have baptism, which looks back at the cleansing work of Christ, and communion, which remembers that he died in our place to take our sins upon himself. So Jesus being brought through the old covenant, uh, through those rites, still points to the work that he would do. But the rites of purification are actually for the mother who was considered, any mother was considered impure based on the guilt of her child's sin, which was inherited from Adam. This Jesus is obviously the exception. But let's look at the law. Leviticus 12, one throughout. Leviticus 12. I know how exciting that is when we go to Leviticus. That's that's an exciting book. Uh, Leviticus 12, verse 1. says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days as as at the time of her menstruation and she shall be unclean and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised then she shall continue for 39 or 33 days rather in the blood of her purifying she shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed but if she bears a female child then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to a priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law of for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. You see, this is pointing to atonement. It's not it's not the actual sacrifice or the actual ceremony that cleanses or atones, but it points to what God's doing. Here's what Philip Reichen said. This is interesting. He says, so why did Mary need to go through the process of purification? The child that came out of her womb was no sinner. Jesus was the sinless son of God. He was completely without sin, either original or actual. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and thus he did not inherit the guilt of Adam's sin, nor had he committed any willful sins of his own. So why did Mary have to be purified? Because God commanded it. And also because her son had come to take our sin upon himself. The association between Jesus and the need for cleansing was an early clue that one day he would be the bearer of our sin. As God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he evokes Second Corinthians 5.21. Up to this point, we're setting up the context for what follows. What's taking place here is very significant to Mary and to Joseph. But realize that's just normal practice for the Jews of the time. It's setting up a context for something that I think is going to have deeper significance here for us as Christians in our practice. And so let's continue, because I want to look at that. Luke 2.25 Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we really don't know much about Simeon, except that he was righteous and devout, and that God gave him a special prophetic revelation. He could have been a priest, we're not sure on that. Uh, maybe a rabbi. He, he may have been coming into the temple daily for quite some time looking for, as he calls it, the consolation of Israel. He could have been known as, in the temple as the weird guy. Simeon, though, was pious. It says he was righteous and devout. But we don't see any of the pretension that we see in the Pharisees, uh, like we'll see later in the series when Jesus confronts them, um, for example, in chapter 12. Now, true piety flows from the heart. It's connected to worship. False piety is deliberate. It uses a lot of Christianese and name-dropping and trying to prove how spiritual we are. It's connected with image. You know what Christianese is, Right? Like, that's all the Christian, little Christian buzzwords that nobody else understands. Like, you you hear, oh, brother, did you see that latest Kirk Cameron movie? Oh, that brother's so anointed and spirit-filled. I was just basking this kind of glory of God as I watched it. It really filled my soul, and I was just lifting my neighbor before the Lord that she would see that she needs to be blood-bought and born again, saved by the blood of the Lamb and confess her idolatries to the King, Abba, Father okay maybe it's never that bad but you get the you get the point we've heard this right all the little christian buzzwords that we use and we've all done it a little bit christianese is the way we talk when the people who are not christian are like what did that weirdo just say all right but we've all seen it right or 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 this some of the people who are constantly talking about the popular pastors or preachers that they met or had some connection with Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, Greg Glory, John MacArthur, John Piper, you know, any of those guys. And it's one thing to share that you met somebody. It's kind of exciting to meet somebody that you really like to listen to. But here, like when you tell the same person several times in case you forgot to tell them, or you have to tell everybody that you know, or you tell somebody that over and over again, you know, in case they forget, right? Like that's probably false piety, I was, years ago, I was a, a chaplain at the Paris Auto Speedway, which is just below the Lake Paris Dam. And it, it was it was fun. I'd get to go see the stock car races and sprint car races um, each week, and I'd see them for free, pretty much just for giving the invocation. Every now and then, I had to deal with something hard. There were a few deaths and things like that. But normally, it was just fun. And I got to use the name of Jesus over and over again, uh, each week in front of thousands of unsuspecting race fans with NASCAR hats who are usually half drunk before they throw the first green flag, right? You know the crowd. They're still fun, right? Most of the time, most of the time I stayed in the infield and, you know, hung out with the drivers. I would, sometimes I'd help them with their cars and stuff like that. I'm not that good, but I, I could, you know, hold tools for them and stuff. And I, I had a good time, and, uh, but sometimes I would go up into the stands, and one night, I would decide I was going to do that, and I was walking up into the stands after praying, and this one guy is sitting kind of by himself on the corner of a bleacher, and, I, you know, I, I, I'm walking up towards him, and quickly, he hides his beard behind his back, and he goes, God, word, brother, such a blessing to see a brother bringing the word unashamed. I got to, I go to Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta, just getting deeper in the word and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was like, he just continues, and he's naming his teachers, and I'm almost positive that he, he mentioned Papa Chuck. That's what they would all call Chuck Smith, right? And I'm just over there like, why are you hiding your beer? Like, like what do you think? I'm going to go, like, rat you out of the Bible college? I, I don't care. And, I mean, he could have said something. He could have thanked me or whatever without telling me that he went to Bible college. And, but he somehow thought that going to Bible college along with me thinking that he doesn't drink beer was going to impress me but why? Like, who am I? Why, is he even, why did he feel the need to impress me? Guessing. I'm, I can't tell you for sure. I'm guessing that was false piety. You know, it's kind of like the illustration that Jesus gave. We read, it on, on, uh, uh, read about that on Christmas Eve about the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's in Luke 18. Let's read that again. Luke 18, verse 10. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm such a good boy, right? Uh, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee's piety was concerned with his own righteousness, his own image. It wasn't a devotion to God based on God's righteousness. True piety passively flows from the heart, false piety is deliberate. True piety is connected to worship. False piety is connected to image. True piety speaks sincere truth. False piety, just things like uses Christianese. True piety recognizes God's supremacy. False piety, name drops. True piety understands my sinfulness, and false piety tries to prove how spiritual I am. True piety denies self. False piety is concerned with self. True piety responds to God's work. False piety tries to move God's hand. True piety prepares the heart to worship. False piety prepares oneself for visible worship. True piety uses God-honoring speech and false piety uses self-promoting speech. True piety blesses others, false piety blesses self. True piety considers the heart, false piety assesses appearance. True piety points to Jesus, and false piety points to self. True piety is always Godward. It, it does not draw attention to itself, but rather exalts God to the exclusion of self. You might remember Joshua Harris and the purity culture. It's an example of how we can take something good and twist piety just enough to be adequately deceptive. What happened was that sexual purity became almost the foundation of cultural Christianity, where piety and purity became almost synonymous. It started with a good premise. We encouraged young people to remain sexually pure, to be celibate until marriage. And that's good for a whole slew of reasons, including sexual purity not only honors God, but it's commanded by Him. So we're encouraging obedience to God, right? And and also sexual purity or abstinence, that's 100% effective in preventing unplanned pregnancies. Well, except for Mary. But it's 100% effective in preventing unplanned pregnancies, STDs, and much of the future emotional pain that comes upon a person and their spouse later on. It's physically and emotionally safer, wiser, and healthier. So how can that possibly be wrong? See, what the problem was is that the purity culture was all about outward behavior modification. We had conferences. We had purity rings. We had the book. You remember that one, right? I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. You know? As a youth pastor, I think I rarely preached a message that didn't include something about soiling yourself forever if you didn't stay pure. And that was the issue. There was no grace. And therefore the gospel was swept aside. We told girls that they would be spoiled goods if they lost their virginity before marriage. And then when they did, they felt, they, they, they felt like they could not be good enough. We told them that letting some boy take their virginity would be stealing the one gift she would never then be able to give to her husband. And we told kids that when they had sex with someone, they were having sex with everyone they had ever slept with. All these things were kind of true, but they were partially true because they failed to recognize the forgiving and cleansing blood of Jesus. We were afraid to talk about grace because... We thought that it would give kids license to have sex and encourage behavior that they would later regret. As if God's grace didn't have the power to lead our kids. And see, I was on both sides of that. I would be up there and I proudly boasted about my purity to all these kids. The problem is my virtue is not what gives me value to God. The blood of Jesus is what gives me the value to God. Do we really want our kids learning that they can earn God's favor through virtue? Do we want them spending their lives avoiding sin out of fear, trying to earn their salvation through merit? Or do we want them to be obedient to God out of love for Him and gratefulness for His grace and mercy? Because if the scriptures are correct, a lot of very virtuous people are going to spend eternity in hell because they never knew Jesus. This is what Jesus said about it in Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Want to hear something really hard? Some of our kids are going to have to experience God's grace. Some of our kids are going to have to experience God's grace after a big fall before they're ever going to understand his love. And that's scary. I pray it's none of my kids. We want to protect them from that pain. But but if that's what God needs to use to reach them, we need to be God's love in the midst of their sin and pain. Show them mercy. The problem is with the purity culture, we taught people to have false piety, to flaunt their purity. We taught them that this is what it meant to honor God. And and yes, while sexual impurity dishonors God, purity is only honoring to God if it's done with the right attitude. Purity is the outcome of piety, not the cause of it. You want proof? Anyone know where Joshua Harris is now? He's the one that wrote the book and he was at the cent- front and center of the, the purity culture. Any, anyone know where he is now? He's recanted all of his teachings. He said he no longer considers himself a Christian. He divorced his wife and is selling Christians a course on how to deconstruct their faith for $275. That's the outcome of false piety. You see, true piety does not have to make a particular concern over a particular sin to be the central focus of faith. That's horizontal piety, and it will always lead to disaster. True piety is vertical. True piety points to Jesus, and if we're pointing to Jesus and we seek to please Jesus, we don't need to be protected from a particular sin by hearing the same sermon preached over and over and over again. And if we're pointing people to Jesus, we don't need to spend all of our time talking about sex or abortion or addiction or social justice or whatever our pet cause is. They're all important. But if we're pointing to Jesus, we're exercising piety. And I don't have to be the Holy Spirit for people around me. He's way better at his job than I am. I make a terrible Holy Spirit. You know that? I, li- I lived next door to a, guy, uh, to a gay couple in Denver. Uh, And up to that point, I had so isolated myself in the church that I had no idea how to interact with them. And so I'm sitting there praying. I'm asking God how to show me, to to teach me how to show them the, the error of their ways. And as I prayed and I studied, I realized that God's answer was, don't. I was to point them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do his job. And Listen, we do come to those places in Scripture when we're teaching, when we're having discussions, and they deal with such things. And and I pray that I will every time teach them truthfully and unashamedly. But I learned that I don't need to force the issue. I don't need to force it into every single text that I read. My first job is to point to Jesus. This is what Jesus said in John 17 as he prayed. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Some of us here have a longer history of virtue than others. Some of us struggle with virtue more than others do. And you know, all of that is irrelevant to our value. Because if we know Jesus, we are recipients of grace that was immeasurably costly to our Lord. Galatians 6.14 says this, Far be it, from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it for me to boast in purity and how much I read scripture and how often I show up to church. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross. Simeon was devoted to God's promises. Trying to look spiritual was not what was on his mind. It, it was off his radar. True piety denies self. And because Simeon was a pious man, he was sensitive to hearing the Spirit speak to him. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see Messiah. You know, here's the interesting thing. It, some of you might have experienced this. Doesn't it seem like God likes to give us our big, biggest blessings when we aren't even looking for them? There were pious people all over the temple. Some were... Some had true piety, some had false piety, and God works differently in each one of them. And here Simeon is given a special favor, favor, not because of his piety, but because God chose to work in that way in him. Piety responds to God's work. It doesn't move God's hand. Sometimes we like to point to Simeon's piety as the reason that God gave him the blessing. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that whatsoever. There, this isn't an if-then or a cause-and-effect narrative. It tells us what Simeon did, it tells us what God did, but it doesn't indicate that in anywhere that, that God was responding to Simeon. There's no because or therefore or anything else that might tell us that Simeon had somehow earned this blessing that God was giving him. Let's continue in verse 27. And he came... This is Luke 2, 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought, the, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to all your people, Israel. Can you imagine looking in the face of the baby Jesus, knowing that future, right? How many of us come here, we tend to put on our best false piety before we come together to worship? Like, our week, our mouth is going, and we're, you know, cheating on our time card just just a little bit, though. And then we come into church, and, oh, brother, praise the Lord, right? And then we... We pretend. You know, the, this section here is why I think Simeon may have been a priest or maybe at least a rabbi. Because the fact that Mary and Joseph just handed baby Jesus over for Simeon to to hold up like Simba and Lion King or something tells me that that there must have been some kind of built-in trust there. But but here's the thing. Simeon was sincere. I don't, I don't see anything here to indicate that, that he felt entitled to Or or like he had to be an important part of the story here, he he was a, a recipient of God's grace, and I think he was keenly aware of that. He didn't have the he didn't have the stress of wondering if he was good enough. He saw God's promise to him fulfilled, and he's at rest. He feels complete. See, one of the problems with false piety is that it reveals our insecurity. We flaunt our our spirituality so that people will tell us how good we are. Some of us hoping that if enough people say it, we might believe it too. But we don't need the approval of humans. Paul, the apostle, in the New Testament, uh, in, in his letters, he contended for the gospel in Galatia, and he had to address his own motives. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians 1, 10. He says, For I, am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me read that again. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a huge statement. In the end, Paul loved the Galatians, but his message was vertical. It was to honor God, not to impress people. Going back to Simeon, because of Simeon's piety, he understood some very deep and profound theology that most of the Jews missed. First off, he understood that the that salvation was of the Lord. It it wasn't by pedigree or purity or merit. It wasn't by blood. It was by Jesus' blood. It wasn't by bloodline. Secondly, Jesus is the instrument of salvation universally to all kinds of people, all the types of people around the world, not just the Jews. there's no salvation, we all agree, there's no salvation apart from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And we see here Simeon prophesying about the death of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb as he holds this baby. Interesting, before the death of Jesus, they would all reject him for that very thing because they were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from Rome, not to die for their sins. It seems Simeon knew better because his concern was for God's glory over and above his own hopes and desires. Because of his piety he spoke a profound and marvelous truth. Verse thirty three, Luke two thirty three. that not only would Jesus face opposition, but that Israel would face judgment. That was not very popular. And Simeon was a blessing. Simeon was a blessing. Because of his piety, Mary and Joseph received a blessing, but also a difficult prophetic truth about the future of Jesus. See, it's not about how we look to one another. It isn't about our appearances. In fact, we like to quote 1 Thessalonians 5.22 in the King James because of how it reads. We like, that's the translation we like for this one. It says, abstain from all appearances of evil. You want to hear something disturbing? That is kind of a bad translation. <laughs> uh, in fact, it would be a scathing indictment against Jesus who was always hanging out with people who he should have avoided and places he should have stayed away from uh, to avoid the appearance of evil. That word translated appearance in the King James is actually, it's a noun. And it's much better translated form or kind. So in other translations, it would read, in the ESV, abstain from every form of evil. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, stay away from every kind of evil. The NIV, reject every kind of evil. Uh, The New Revised Standard Version, abstain from every form of evil. So see, we're not dealing with our appearance, God sees the heart. You may remember reading about Samuel the prophet. Uh, He was a prophet when Saul was king of Israel. God rejected Saul because of some serious issues. But then the next guy, David, we remember that he was equally bad, if not worse at some times. But God chose David, who was the last of Jesse's son that Samuel would even examine. In fact, Jesse didn't even mention him at first. He wasn't the firstborn. He probably didn't look all that impressive. But David is who God chose. Let's look at how the story goes in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16. You might turn there if you're in the habit of highlighting your Bible or anything. Because there's a part here in verse 7, I think, that you're going to really want to highlight. But let's start in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? fill your horn with oil, and go. I will, send to you, I will send you to, rather, Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invited, <clears throat> rather, um, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did, not, did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come, to me, come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely this is the, the, the Lord's uh, is, uh, anointed as before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was, he was rudy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Based on outward appearances, especially if we knew the future at that point, none of us would have chosen David. Nor would we have chosen Abraham, or Jacob, or Paul, or any of Jesus' disciples. See, it's not about appearances. But false piety is chiefly concerned with appearances. I want to, I want to close by looking at a very special and pious lady. Her name is Anna. Anna. I have an Anna at home. She's little and she's cute. This Anna was very old. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from from when she was a virgin, rather. And then, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was a very devout widow. She was a prophetess. Now, that doesn't make her a fortune teller or anything like that. Uh, She proclaimed God's word, that's the role of a prophet. Uh, To bear witness to the Word of God. That also doesn't mean that she had any special teaching authority over men, like a pastor or a bishop or an elder, but that God had given her special discernment to bear witness. We seem to know less about her than we do about Simeon, but what we do know is that she was faithful and devout. What do we see that reveals her piety? There's a constant presence in the temple, fasting and praying. Those are things that aren't very loud and outward. In fact, we're not supposed to even go around telling people, hey, check me out, I'm fasting. That's not a thing. We have Harvest Prayer Partners here. We meet once a week, not every day like Anna, but we meet once a week here. Um, And and it's for an hour. It's at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays. I want to encourage you all to join us. Right now we're meeting in my study in my office right over there. And we pray for our church and our community, and different various things, people that have needs. And and I don't know how often everyone else fasts, but I know that I certainly don't do it enough. You know, we have a tendency to neglect fasting. Um, You know, don't we? I I mean, I know we do that. But the thing is, it honors God. It's an act of piety. Fasting reminds of our true it reminds us of our true spiritual need. If you've never fasted or or you haven't in a while, give it a shot. Take a day, fast for the day, dedicate that day to prayer, and see if God won't meet you in a very special way. I used to I used to fast a lot when I was a youth pastor, but usually it was involuntary because I couldn't afford food. Um, but the, but there have been some times that I've just dedicated to just simple fasting and prayer. Uh, And and you know, it's never left me empty-handed. Oftentimes it's been because I was looking to hear God, to, 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 to get direction from Him, or because I was praying for somebody. In fact, oftentimes it was things I couldn't have talked about to other people. Why did Anna recognize Jesus, the baby, immediately? was her piety. She was devout. Because of Anna's piety, she was in the presence of Jesus without even having looked for him. She was devout in the temple, and that's where Jesus met her. What would it look like for Jesus to meet us in our devotion? I love Anna. She's she's in the temple daily without any noted expectation of any kind of benefit to her. She was just simply devoted to prayer and fasting. It wasn't about her. And she's blessing she, she's blessing God. And then she sees him. Oh, that's cool. Let's close up the passage. Verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned into Galilee to their town, own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. See all of this takes place, and then Mary and Joseph go on to normal life. Listen, friends, piety for Anna meant daily devotion in the temple, but even for Jesus it didn't mean that. In fact, we're going to see that apart from one incident recorded, his childhood and early adulthood are unremarkable enough that none of the gospel writers had anything to say about it. This probably this is probably the hardest sermon to apply for me so far in, the t- in, in my time here at IBC. Because I can't teach you how to be pious. In fact, I, I can't even say I, I really have a handle on that at all. And that's because piety can't be taught. I can't give you seven, seven habits of a highly spiritual, pious person. That, that would only lead to false piety. So so how, what do we do? How do I become more devout? How do we become more devout? dedicated, more faithful. How do I learn to be a truly pious follower of Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. But I think, I think we have a start here. I think I've figured out that Anna, Simeon and Anna give us a good start, right? Worship for God's sake, not mine, will result in a very powerful presence of God. It isn't that God is less present when I'm worried about me, but that I, when I'm worried about me, I'm just not aware of his presence. But when I am worshiping for his sake and letting go of myself, I'm aware of, of, of his presence right then and there. And true offer, or to wor- worship rather, offers myself to God at whatever cost he deems appropriate. Can I surrender to God Can I surrender to serving Him faithfully, regardless of what God calls me to do or what that might mean for me? Let me close by sharing some of the dumbest advice I've ever heard from the pulpit. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. The idea is that if you pray for God's will, you may find yourself in some tribal village in Africa and if you pray for humility, He might humiliate you. Listen, if that's what God needs out of me, so be it. Don't ever be careful what you pray for. And always be grateful for how God answers that prayer, even if it isn't what you want. Even if it's unbearably painful. When we can learn to do that, we can begin to know what it means to be faithfully pious before our God, who deserves such devotion from us. Let's pray. Holy Heavenly Father, we are broken and needy people. In our pride, we compare ourselves to one another and we ignore our own sin. We flaunt our false piety so that people will see how spiritual we are. Lord, forgive us. Humble us to see our own desperate need. Humble us to be gracious and merciful to those around us. Cause us, Lord, to be truly pious in in our devotion to you. And not to be seen, not to feel good about ourselves, not to earn favor, but to honor you for who you are at whatever cost you deem necessary to us. God, we offer ourselves to you in humility, knowing that we've failed in all of these things. Guide us, Lord, as we enter this week, as we in our mission field, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.